if your operator sucks, the deal doesn't matter. So when you're looking at the deal, get interested in it, but then put down the OM and pick up the phone and start vetting the sponsor. That's what's mattered. Welcome to Passive Wealth Strategies for Busy Professionals. Thank you for tuning in today. Today, we've got a great interview with Scott Lewis from the Spartan Investment Group. Spartan is a self-storage syndication company uh, who I actually currently passively invest with. Uh, I'm in, in one of their deals in Texas, and it's going great. Today, we're going to talk about self-storage, just the asset class, the markets that are ideal to invest in today, where we as, say, smaller independent investors can really find our niche in this self-storage asset class where we're in, in terms of competing with uh, big Wall Street dollars, which we want to minimize our competition with big Wall Street dollars because they tend to pay too much for things. So we really want to find our own little niche inside this niche asset class. This is a fun interview. Scott's a really nice guy. I enjoy my investment experience uh, with Spartan Investment Group, and I'm sure you will enjoy this interview. Thank you for tuning in once again, and now on to the interview. Scott, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Taylor, really appreciate you having me. Thanks for uh, the opportunity to talk about self-storage. Yeah, I'm really happy to talk with you about it. I mean, I'll probably address this in the introduction, but uh, I invest with you guys and I'm happy to talk about the self-storage asset class more deeply on the show. We haven't really addressed it yet. So you know, I, obviously I'm, I'm converted to self-storage. I love it. But to the listeners out there, what's so great about self-storage, particularly when we compare it to, say, multifamily or mobile home parks? Sure. And, and I think I'll have to start maybe at Spartan's kind of foray into the self-storage and why we decided to do this. So Spartan Investment Group started as an, as a residential company. We were doing some flips and some condo conversions in D.C., and we just really didn't like the residential game. It just wasn't really in our blood. So we started to look at all these different asset classes, multifamily being one, self-storage, office, medical office, mobile home parks, all this other commercial asset classes. And we looked at them for against three evaluation criteria that Spartan really is interested in. Easy to operate, easy to maintain, and quick rent recapture, i.e. eviction. That last one, you know, when you look at the residential space, is probably the most damning out of all of them. It's very, very difficult to evict folks in even the most landlord-friendly states. It's not quick. In self-storage, as I'll talk about, it can be 60 days. And, and not only do you get somebody out of your unit, but you can sell their stuff to try to recapture some of the rent. Now, I will dispel the myth that some of your listeners might be like on storage wars. Storage wars, yeah. Shoulders like <laughs> yelling into the unit and they're like fighting over it. Yeah, that doesn't happen. Um, <laughs> it's on the internet. And it usually nets like $16 for the unit. So there's oh, there's a, occasionally there's some uh, some good bidding that goes on, but most of the time it's a loss leader. But kind of going back, when we use those three evaluation criteria, self-storage really fell to the bottom. I kind of want to take your your listeners through what a self-storage is. Many folks are are used to seeing just those roll-up doors, like rows and rows of roll-up doors from the older facility that sometimes is behind the fence, sometimes it's not. 
some of the facilities looked pretty junky in say the late 80s, early 90s. But self-storage really has kind of undergone a renaissance, I'll call it, since the financial crisis. And the reason for that is that self-storage is really a lifestyle investment. It's either going up because people are buying a bunch of stuff they don't need. I'm currently <laughs> broadcasting on vacation from a very exclusive RV park in Breckenridge. And when my wife and I are walking our dogs around, everybody's got these razors and golf carts and like land yachts and all these other things that they have. And that's the economy is really great. Well, a lot of these folks will go back to wherever they're from and they're going to live in an HOA. And an HOA controlled neighborhood is going to say nothing in your driveway. So where do you put your, your razors and your golf carts and your RVs? Well, you put them down the street to storage. Also, when businesses are doing better, what do you do? Do you buy additional triple net retail frontage that's super expensive for your inventory? Or do you go to the storage that's probably one mile away? And you rent a unit there and you keep your excess dog food there and you just send one of your employees back and forth. That's a true story from one of our facilities in Conifer, Colorado. There's a retail strip that's across the street. I like if I had a better arm and I didn't throw like I, I can't at all. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was trying to like I was trying not to take it down a, a, an improper. Uh, yeah, hit it with football. There. Yes, like um, I was a hockey player. I was not a baseball uh, or football player, so yeah, me too. I don't throw very well. But uh, if I could throw, I could hit it with a rock. Almost every single one of those tenants in that retail shopping center have storage in our facility. What are they doing? They're storing inventory because every every dollar of that twenty four to thirty dollars a square foot triple net should be generating revenue. Versus, I, I think our storage is about sixteen dollars a square foot across the street. So if they're paying 24, I mean, that's a delta of $8 a square foot that they're gaining by using the storage across the street. So it's a really smart move. Now, on the flip side, when things are going to hell in a handbasket, like they were in, call it 2007, 2008, 2009, where people were losing their homes. So, yeah, they, they didn't have their razors and boats and that kind of stuff, but they had furniture and like artifacts from their family, heirlooms and stuff like that. You know, they were, were losing a four bedroom home and going into a one bedroom or two bedroom apartment in one of your multifamily deals. And they needed <laughs> some place to put their stuff. Right. So they put yeah. it in storage until times get better. Same with businesses during layoffs. Office equipment is incredibly expensive. So instead of like trying to sell that stuff for pennies on the dollar, businesses will store it until times get better and they expand again. Then they go grab it. Um, and they're paying a fraction of the price that it would be to lose it. So with that, with that kind of that, I'll say, balance between the divide of good times and bad times, storage did phenomenally well during the 2008-2009 recession. So what happened is the big dogs took note. There were already four REITs in the space, but then some of the bigger ones also took note. And the New York money started to pour in and the REIT money started to pour in. Well, when that happened, that really kind of matured the asset class. Prior to the big dogs taking note of the 2008-2009 recession, self-storage was a pretty sleepy asset class. And comparatively to you know your multifamily folks or office or retail, it still is a sleepy sector. It's not even considered a top five asset class when you look at industrial, retail, medical, multifamily. It's not. Now, there's a ton of money pouring in, which is good and bad. Good that it's institutionalized the asset class, so it's easier to assess. 
but then it's easier to assess. So that competition drives, cap rates compress, and things get more expensive and it's harder to buy. So we, you know, those are the reasons why we love self-storage. And kind of going back to the evaluation criteria, I'll touch on uh, the two easy to maintain and easy to operate. It's a concrete box. There's nobody ripping out my copper when they're mad at me because like I'm evicting them, right? I mean, you want to punch the concrete wall. I mean, <laughs> by all means, have at it. The worst thing that we do is people just vacate their unit that is completely full to the brim of garbage in there. Um, that's kind of the I'll tear out your copper wire mentality in storage. But that doesn't happen very often. The vast majority of people are, you know, if we do have to evict, they're not happy to go but it's not a big to do because we're not we're not a housing unit for a family and jurisdictions i mean if you try to evict somebody or you try to raise the rent a ton on a multifamily, politicians get involved nobody cares about grandma's rocking chair nobody so like if you throw away somebody's possessions yes there are legal uh processes that you have to follow but nobody cares about grandma's rocking chair so there's no politicians that are getting involved with uh self-storage evictions or anything else like that yeah, when it comes to rent control and that kind of a thing and the self-storage units, I mean, it might be something, I don't know, I don't even, I don't rent one, but I don't know, 60 bucks a month or something like that. And, you know, t- times get tight, but people can come up with $60 in a month if they really want to keep that stuff. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So let's look at percentages because one of the ways that, you know, a lot of your investments and my investments, a lot of the way they work for us smaller dogs that don't have big Wall Street money or a hedge fund behind them, or life insurance money. The way that these work is we're, we're creating value. And some of the ways that we're creating value is fixing up the facility or raising rents or doing something like that. So when you take a multifamily in, I don't know, Chicago, in, in a good multifamily, call it a B plus or A minus asset class, that rents probably $2,000 a month for a one bedroom, something like that. I'm making stuff up. Let's just call it that because I, I know those exist in Chicago. So I know mm-hmm. I know somewhere in that city, I'm correct. So it's, let's look at a 10% price increase. That's $200 a month. So a 10% price increase will absolutely drive a ton of value in that facility. Well, one, how often can you do that? Once a year, at most, because you're controlled by rent. And you actually said an oxymoron for self-storage, rent control. There's no such thing. If I wanted to, I could raise my rents every month. Now, mm-hmm. I, I do need to give 30 days notice, but let's look at a facility that I have in Conifer. The rent is $150 a month. So Man. a 10% increase in my facility will be very similar in cap rate. If Given the cap rates are equal, if I can increase all my rents by 10%, and I can increase all my rents by 10% in the other facility, then I should be able to drive similar proportional value in both of those facilities. But who can pay it easier? Your multifamily tenant where it's going up $200 a month or my self-storage tenant that's going up $15 a month because it's 10% of 150. So when we look at that, I mean, we can raise the rents pretty significantly. And, and you're right, it's not that big of a deal. It's like, oh, well, looks like we're not going to Starbucks three times this month, but yeah, we can make the rent, right? So that, that's really where the self-storage is. Now, Now the valuations that you would ask me to talk about, they're nowhere near multifamily, not at all. And the cap rates are also, um, they're approaching multifamily for sure, but they're not mm-hmm. there yet. So multifamily properties are, are far more valuable from a total dollar volume. There's 
very, very few 50 or $60 million self-storage facilities. They do exist. There's some really big ones in, say, Seattle or Dallas or Los Angeles that could get to the 50 or $60 million for the individual facility. But for the most part, their 5 to $10 million is kind of that middle 40% of your bell-shaped curve with you know them kind of being right in the middle. Hmm. So is that that five, did I get the number right? Five to 10 million. Where are the big dogs kind of playing in there? And then where can, I mean, for all the great big things you guys are doing, you know, and I invest with you, I'm, I'm happy to, you're not Wall Street money, which is great because I don't want my money with Wall Street. So you're playing smaller than the Wall Street guys, the REIT guys. So where does that split kind of work out and what dollar valuation does it, you know, where you start seeing those REITs come in and really kick the prices up and be a lot more competitive with their offers and stuff like that. That's one of the, the I'll say, nuances of, of self-storage is the REITs are playing at all levels. And the reason for that is that they've been entrenched a long time. And these big monster self-storage facilities that are getting into the $50 million range is number one, there's very, very few of them. So let's just talk about the 10 to $20 million facilities. Those are relatively new phenomenon. The last, call it five years. These big class A facilities that look like office buildings in downtown mm-hmm. locations, or they look like a multifamily, but they just got a bunch of doors on the inside. That's not the history of self-storage. That's new. And it's because jurisdictions are becoming less and less interested in self-storage and in order to get those on main and main, the design quality and the overall quality had to increase in order to do that. The big dogs, I mean, Extra Space, Public, StoreQuest, and CubeSmart, those are all national brands, especially the big two, Extra Space and Public. Most people are familiar with those brands because they're national. Public's been in it the longest. Um, Public was started in the late 70s in Texas. Um, they've been at the longest and extra space is number two and they're doing a phenomenal job trying to catch up the public, but they're a long ways away. The other reason that the REITs are playing kind of at all levels is because they have a lot of third party management platforms. So even if you are an individual owner and you want extra space to slap its name on your facility and manage it for you because they can do a much better job than you can, they will come in and do that. A lot of times what will happen is if they if they come in and they're really successful, they'll write a check. Because they don't want you, John Q. owner, to be a part of their equation. They want to own the facility. So if they really like it, then it's going really well. Eventually, most people will get bought out by those big REITs. Where we're really being able to create some distance is moving into secondary and tertiary markets where the REITs aren't there yet because the markets aren't big enough. Now, that also hurts some of the facility valuations. But as you're well aware, we just paid $6 million for a facility in a tertiary market. Um, that was a pretty good deal. We got about a 10% discount on that right out of the gate from the appraisal. But there's no REITs in that market whatsoever. We've got another market where there are REITs we're, that we're looking at right now and we're surrounded by them. So I think really kind of they're playing in all the different spaces. Now, the small facilities, the 15 to 30,000 square foot facilities, um, that's a pretty small self-storage facility. No REITs are playing in that. They're going to play in the 40 to say, you know, they're kind of their sweet spot is 40 to say 100 uh, thousand square feet because 40,000 is generally the minimum that you'll have to support an on-site employee, a manager. And REITs don't want to be messing with uh, unmanned facilities. So, I mean, there's so much to unpack in this asset class, right? So I want to kind of 
liken this to multifamily. We have a lot of multifamily syndicators come on the show. I invest in multifamily, all that great stuff. So multifamily, the dominant strategy right now is value add. You go in, you buy it, you raise the rents, you cut the expenses and raise the NOI, sell it for more later. Great. You're making money. So in this self-storage model, you know, obviously I invest with you guys. I know the whole strategy and I know the things that uh, you're doing on the deal that I invested in. But as far as the overall strategy in the self-storage world, what are people pursuing? Is it just a value add strategy? Are people going for cash flow plays and just holding the long term? And uh, if it is just value add, what are the value add strategies that are making the most sense today? Yeah, so I think folks right now are going after all different types of strategies from core, core plus value add and opportunistic. You know, core being buying that stabilized facility in downtown Denver uh, to place capital in an asset class that's going to cash flow probably better than, say, a multifamily would just because there's less competition and the cap rates aren't as compressed to opportunistic, which are development from raw land. That's really been the strategy over the last like three years. So prior to this renaissance, self-storage really hadn't seen a building boom in 10 to 15 years. Been a long time since a lot of inventory came on the market. Well, when cap rates started to compress in self-storage, it made sense for developers to ratchet up what they were doing. And now we're starting to enter an era of hyper-supply in some of the primary MSAs. There's still a ton of room to grow in some of the secondary and tertiary markets, and the, the big dogs are already starting to set their sights there. We got there a little bit early because just because of necessity, because we would get stomped all over if we tried to do a <laughs> class A facility in Denver. I mean, the, the reeds would stomp all over us. We, we couldn't do anything there. So hopefully we've been in these markets a little bit longer than the big guys. And now they're starting to really kind of turn their sights there. So it, it could present a pretty good opportunity for us if we're able to, to close down some of the deals that we're working on right now because we'll be able to turn them over to the other guys that are starting to look at the secondary and tertiary markets. The value add play that you're in is very, very similar. And that that includes all of the things that you just mentioned on the multifamily going in. A lot of these are single mom and pop owners. So the expenses haven't been under control or they're running all kinds of personal stuff through the business. That's so just it's pretty standard. Maybe their contracts aren't the best. We just renegotiated an insurance contract and knocked off like 50% of our insurance premium. Um, We've added a bunch of stuff, renegotiated with U-Haul, renegotiated tenant insurance stuff, just really starting to pay more attention to expenses. Very similar to what you were saying. In addition, I'm not very familiar with a multifamily. I don't know how much goes on as far as marketing for a multifamily building goes. But for self-storage, marketing is incredibly important because your customers are turning over on average every eight months. But anywhere from three days to... 24 years, we've had some customers in one of our facilities. Wow. Yeah, those are the good ones. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but we have to do a lot of marketing and, and we're purchasing a site right now. There's no website. It's not on Google. Nobody answers the phone. The sign is literally falling down on the building. Wow. That's a huge kind of like business play that we have is to go in and just start marketing. I mean, like, there's no brain science to it. It's like, Go to Google, right? Put up a website. Answer the phone. (laughs) It's very, very hard to rent a unit when you don't answer the phone. All the way to building additional storage. The deal that you're in, you're well aware that we're developing that two acres of land that's there, and we're going to add 
you know, another 36,000 square feet out there, which represents about 40% additional inventory to that facility. So that will drive a ton of value there in addition to raising rents and doing the things that the multifamily guys are doing and a lot of the other asset classes are doing as well. Mm. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot in there and I mean, marketing is important for every business, right? I mean, you need to get the word out there and, you know, answering the phone comes down to customer service and sales. And I mean, you need to, if somebody doesn't pick up my call and I need to store my stuff today, then I'm going to call the next one, even, you know, yep. even though it's less convenient. As far as, you know, local supply and competition and things like that, what are you guys looking for? Because, you know, people are only willing to drive so far to go anywhere, whether it's a self-storage unit or, you know, anything else. So what do you look at in terms of local competition and how are you assessing the demand in the market? Yeah, there's two different methodologies. You can do drive time or you can do distance rings. Kind of the old heuristics are one, three, five miles. We don't necessarily use those inside of Spartan. Um, They don't necessarily represent what people are doing today. We use drive times. We use some different technology that is able to draw polygons to annotate kind of drive time. We, We think that's more indicative than just an arbitrary distance because one mile in downtown Denver is a hell of a lot different than one mile in Corsicana, Texas. (laughs) Uh, That being said, there is a difference in calculating demand for a rural versus a very urban facility. In the urban stuff, it's one, three, five mile. That's generally the heuristic. You look at competitors in, in a one mile ring, three mile ring, five mile ring. And if you're more rural, you can switch to three, five, seven to kind of look at where your competitor's at. For us, a lot of ours are in secondary and tertiary markets. So we look at uh, five, 10, 15 minute drive times because people generally don't want to drive very far to get to these facilities. But you'd be pretty amazed in like in a place, you know, like Corsicana, Texas, the drive times, you go pretty damn far in 15 minutes on 65 mile an hour, like side streets, which is just Texas, right? Texas mm-hmm. has like, you know, like 300 mile an hour highways. You just do whatever you want. But, <laughs> But, um, but there's just really big open stretches in Texas. So 15 minutes easily, easily could be 10 miles away, 12 miles away. So if somebody's in a rural town in Texas, they would drive 12 miles to get to that facility. Now, some folks might ask like, well, you know, if you're in a rural area, do you have a lot of land and, and things like that? But a lot of people do have that. A lot of people have space in their garage. They have space in a the basement. They have space in an attic, but yet they still get self-storage. The underlying psychology there, no idea. I'm not a psychologist. I don't know but a good majority of the people that rent. So when we look at that, we know that folks, even that are a little bit farther out, could be customers of ours. And we look at the competitors there and we ultimately calculate the amount of square footage that's in the space versus the supply. And there's demand heuristics out there that are published by uh, the Self-Storage Association. And kind of they, they do an annual heuristics of all these different things and demand is one of them. And self-storage just kind of fluctuates between five to you know eight square foot Per person is generally what a market saturation looks like. So if you go out there and you calculate your supply and your supply is you know one square foot per person, you may have a really good opportunity on your hand. If you go out there and you calculate and it's 24, you may, you may not. So it, it's kind of, you know, it, it's not black and white by any means as to the demand. So there's a there's a scientific component and an art kind of an art to it as well. Yeah, I mean it 
everything, all of the investments we make are case by case, right? I mean, you're talking about these radii, 135 mile versus driving time. And then I'm thinking about this where I live. I live on the south side of the river in Richmond in a good area. And if you drew those rings, 135 mile, you would encompass some self-storage facilities on the north side of the river. But for me to get to the north side of the river, I got to go way out of my way across a bridge. I'm going to pay a toll. I have an easy pass, but I have to pay a toll. And the drive time is going to be ridiculous. But on the other hand, if you just look at drive time, if you continue to go south of me, away from the river, well, the crime rates go up and it just generally gets less safe. So I can see how it turns into, yeah, you have these heuristics, you have these numbers, all these things you look at, and then there's a little bit of, uh, I don't know, uh, right brain, left brain, whatever you want to call it. I don't know which one is which, but you have to go just evaluate the property, right, and see if, if it makes sense and get to know the market. Every one of our feasibility studies has both a, a digital and a boots on the ground component. We have a director of business intelligence uh, Lindsay, that does all of our internal research and uses all of those different metrics to include crime rates. We have some pretty sophisticated data systems for as small as we are. And then that informs our boots on the ground feasibility trip, which is headed up by our director of acquisitions, Ben, who actually goes there and kicks the tires. He goes to all the competitors. He'll drive across that bridge. He'll drive down into the ghetto, like much to my chagrin. But yes, he does do that. <laughs> And we really look at that and we look at the terrain features as well. I mean, if we have an obstacle in our path, like there's a couple of us that are military folks that completely understand like the looking at terrain features. And if it's a terrain feature that causes a train to be what we call restrictive, we're definitely going to look at that because it, it may not matter if there's one bridge that's going over there. All those all of the apartments and everything that line that river on the south side of that river. It may or may not matter if that drive time, if you look at it and we do the polygon and it actually takes traffic into account. So if it's going to take somebody 45 minutes to get across that river because there's one bridge and it's a toll bridge, we would discount that heavily across that river and we may not use it. Yeah, it's all the the fine details that end up really making the difference when it comes to analyzing any deal. I mean, we're talking self-storage here, but um, no matter what you're looking at, it's it's all the fine details. And you mentioned your team. Um, obviously, you guys have a bunch of my money, so I like you guys. And probably the, the coolest thing that's happened in addition to the money coming back my way was I just for the listeners out there, I got this uh, an investor booklet. There's a, a leather three-ring binder with all the documentation in it. It's all very beautiful. It has a Spartan logo in the, I guess, embossed in the leather. Share certificate, which I need to frame and put on my wall, but uh, is gorgeous. It's gorgeous. I've never gotten that from any of the syndicators I've invested with. So, and It's so funny because I, I know you're a little bit of a younger guy, and it's funny that my partner is a millennial. I am not by, <laughs> by a little ways. And so I was putting these binders together, and he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm putting these binders together. He's like, why are you doing that? Nobody wants that. I'm like, what are you talking about? People love these. And it's just ironic that, you know, one of our younger investors, you, is like really enamored with this. Like we had some of our, our older investors that are in their 50s and 60s. Of course, they love them. They absolutely love them. But like you just put the final nail in the coffin for me <laughs> and came over to it with like a 40-pound sledgehammer and slammed it down. So now Ryan's like, are we getting those binders out? Like, oh, what the binders you didn't want? But no, it, it like we, we really want to make sure that our investors get a good experience with that. That's kind of 
you know, for us, we really kind of focus on the customer experience and we want to make it easy to invest with us. We want to make it effective that, yes, we do return your money at some point. That's kind of important. But we also want to make put some emotion in it and really kind of tie it to our brand and kind of our team. And that's really what we go around to kind of create this tribe of investors that we have that are you know, fiercely loyal to us because they know, you know, we take care of folks and we have a good team and we are values bound and we really kind of take it, try for our size, take it to the next level and really try to be, you know, as professional and institutional as we're able to at our size. And I think that binder really kind of represents that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I mean, in, in this investment business, I suppose you could go one of two ways from my end of this transaction and seeing that or hearing about that binder, you could just be like, ah, it's just salesy crap. Or you could say that it's demonstrating something that's underlying. And in, in Spartan's case, it's definitely, in my opinion, demonstrating an underlying thoroughness and business operations excellence. And, you know, I'm, I'm definitely pleased with it. This is not a surface level type of thing that you're not just doing this. It, it demonstrates, a, like I said, something that's, that's underlying. And I mean, you guys have years ago when I, I first met you, I think you were giving out your due diligence checklist. I know I still have it somewhere, but, uh, there's, yeah, now, five, there's now 600 items on it. <sighs> <laughs> Come on. I, I think the one that you had probably has like two, like 45 or something like that. So over the last, call it 24 months or so, we've added another like 300 just as we've gotten more experience and done more studying. So, wow. Yeah. I'm going to have to go back and look at mine. But, uh, yeah, I mean, like I said, I think a lot of the syndicators just broadly that are out there doing it right now don't look at their business operations. Even on the same plane where you guys do. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I could sit here and say how happy I am all day. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right. So, I've got three questions for you that I ask every guest on the show. Yep. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. Great. Number one, what is the best investment in real estate that you've ever made? So, I think probably happening right now is an RV park in Odessa, Texas. It's just, it's turned out to be a very, very good investment in all ways. I think the reason it's been the best investment because it was the hardest one. We, we didn't have experience in an RV park. It really stretched our team to go and do it, but we believed in ourselves enough to, to feel that our team could, could handle the soup to nuts of learning a new asset class very, very, very fast and then operating it at a very, very high level. And it's overshot returns for our investors. It's overshot its projections for us. We're currently under contract to sell it and it's going to do pretty well. The new buyers are getting a fantastic deal and they're really good buyers. And it's just, it, so far, it's been an, a, just kind of an all around outstanding investment, but it really started with the belief that we could do something that we hadn't done before. Interesting. So if we're going to dig into that a little bit, I mean, I've been hearing about this deal just from knowing you guys for a while. What set this particular investment, this RV park, what set it apart from any of the other investments that you've done? I mean, uh, just maybe ignoring the fact that it's an RV park or maybe not. I don't know. What made the difference, really? So I think what made the difference is being able to see the diamond in the rough, I'll say. This thing was a mess. When we first went down there and we walked those streets, 
you know, maybe a lesser investor. I'll, maybe not. That's maybe that's not the right term. But someone, <laughs> a, a thinner skin, maybe less steely investor would have walked on there and said, like, you're crazy. No way we're doing this. But we walked down there kind of with an open mind and just said, like, OK, here's what we're going to do. Here's the steps to improve this thing. Here's what we really kind of feel that people want. And quite frankly, I mean, it was really simple. I mean, a lot of folks do this, but a lot of folks don't. We knocked on the doors of the RVs and said, hey, we're thinking about buying this. Like, what would make this a really nice place for you? And they told us and we just did it. We're not creative. <laughs> we didn't like we're not these magicians. All we did was listen to the customers and do what the heck they told us to do. Mm, interesting. So, but I would assume that there were probably some things that they said you should do that you were just like, uh, we're not doing that, but you got some some good ones and some bad ones, right? Yep, absolutely. Most most of the folks down there, it's in the Permian Basin. It's just that's a good like hardworking blue collar, like damn proud to be an American town. So they they were pretty like upfront with kind of like what they needed, and it was definitely not anything crazy that was ever asked for. I like. To be completely honest with you, I can't think of something that we didn't do for somebody because their requests were really reasonable. And that's just kind of it. Like, you know, most customers are reasonable. You have the outliers that either never talk to you or like come up to you and say, you know what? It would be fantastic if you could put a spaceship landing pad like, <laughs> in the middle of the park. That would be fantastic. We would like that. Right. So I, there, there wasn't really any of those. Hmm. Interesting. Good to know. All right. On the other side of that, you have your best investment. What is the worst investment you've ever made? Yeah, so uh, the worst investment we've ever made was unfortunately a deal we just finished up. And it was a part of two of them. Uh, like both of them were bad. One of them we did end up making a lot of money on, but it came at a big cost to both Ryan and I. And the other one we ended up making no money on. The investors didn't hit their returns. We got them something, uh, but we ended up working for free. That was unpleasant. And we made mistakes in hiring the contractor and we didn't fire fast enough. Like, you know, for the folks that are getting out there into the operations, you can never fire fast enough, especially on the contracting team and make sure your contracts are bulletproof. We had worked with this contractor for years and done a bunch of deals with him. And then all of a sudden he just fell apart on us and our contracts were okay, but they weren't like, they didn't have a ton of teeth. And, you know, we weren't quick enough to fire and replace them out. So while the investors did make a little bit of a return, we definitely missed our returns. We worked for free on one of them. The other one, um, the investors did hit the returns and, and we made some money too. But just the amount of emotional and I'll say maybe not resource toll on our business probably prevented us from from assigning resources to other deals to go after them. So and while we made money, we probably lost money on other deals that we couldn't do because we were mired in this just like, I'll say, cesspool of a, of a project, just trying to make it right for our investors and for the people that bought the condos from us. Mm. So it was uh, the opportunity cost of doing that deal as opposed to doing any other deal that you could have been working on or your team could have been working on. One of them was opportunity cost. The other one, we made no money. And we missed our returns for our investors, which we're not very happy about. So. Absolutely. And so that you mentioned condos. It was condo conversion in DC, at least one of them. I know that's where you started. Both of them. Both, both of them. And same contractor on both of them, which is why both deals, I, I wrap them up into one investment because it was really kind of two deals and we had different investors in both of them. But it was just, that was our, our worst by far, just because of the amount of resources that we had to pump into it. 
to kind of do mediocre. Mm. Interesting. Okay. Good to know. So my favorite question of these three, what is the most important lesson that you've learned so far in your investing career? So the deal doesn't matter. So many investors are chasing yield and they're like, oh, this is an amazing deal. Doesn't matter. Ryan and I are in two deals in Michigan that were amazing deals. <laughs> One of them's three years behind. The other one's two and a half years behind. And both of them should have been slam dunk deals. But if your operator sucks, the deal doesn't matter. So when you're looking at the deal, get interested in it, but then put down the OM and pick up the phone and start vetting the sponsor. That's what's mattered. My team is so good that I can take a giant pile of poop and I can make it perform. I've gone out there that people could take a, a I don't know, unicorn with fairy dust coming out of its rear end and screw it up. So that's like, that's my like biggest thing as an investor is I never care about the deal. The deal's the deal. Anybody can make a deal look good. It's the sponsor that I care about the most. Mm, interesting. And, and you mentioned, you mentioned Ryan a couple of times. We didn't say his name. Ryan Gibson, your business partner in Spartan. I'll have to have him on the show at some point. Absolutely. Um, you haven't yet? Not yet. No, he uh, flew all the way to Richmond from Washington to speak at my meetup, but uh, I haven't had him on the show yet. I need to. All right. I'll ping him and let him know. All right. Good. So where can folks get in touch with you? Where can they learn more about Spartan? All that good stuff. Yeah. So for Spartan, our, our website is www.spartan-investors.com. And if folks are interested in investing, they can go in and put their information in there. And then to get a hold of me, if you want to just give me an email at scott at spartan-investors.com, that's where I'm at. Cool. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today. Like I said, uh, I'm enjoying my investment experience so far, and I hope you guys keep it up. And to anyone that's out there uh, that's interested in self-storage investing, I mean, Spartan's great to, you know, just reach out and learn something. Even if you don't uh, want to pursue it further, you just want to learn. These guys have a lot of uh, information to give. They're super friendly. I don't mean to volunteer their time, but, uh, you know, the, no, they're great. Uh, and I totally agree with what you said, Scott, about vetting your sponsors being number one. I mean. Personally, if I go, I, I went looked at a deal recently outside of my area, went and looked at it, and after I drove it, I was like, all right, well, the sponsor's a fine guy, but I don't believe for half a second that he's going to hit the numbers that he says, so I'm not interested, but yeah, absolutely. So anyway, thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Taylor. Really appreciate the opportunity to be on the show. I'm very happy to have you, happy to talk with you again. To everybody out there tuning in, thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Big help helps other people learn about the show. If you know someone that could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into our tribe. I hope you have a great rest of your day, a great week, and we will talk to you on the next one. Goodbye. Goodbye.